Nelson Mandela, he picked up from me a degree of empathy. We knew that something magical had happened. It was just like an unsaid wow. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, Season 3. It's episode 66 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Dorian Wheel, South Africa's leading clinical and organizational psychologist. You name it, she's done it, and she's accomplished it, and she joins us on the Shine On Podcast today for an absolutely incredible conversation. Dory gives us an inside look into her life, and Dave, I got to tell you, neither one of us has stopped buzzing. Since that interview, we recorded with Dory. Yeah, it was quite a trip, as you might say, talking with Dr. D. She's talking to us from the other side of the planet, and yet she was so compelling. You can tell why. She's an award-winning radio host and just just an amazing person. Yeah, no, I'm fired up to hear that spot. Happy September. Goodbye, summer. Happy September. Summer's officially over. And by the way, you know what? Nobody wants you to ask them after Labor Day how their summer was. You want me to tell you why? Because it's depressing thinking about summer's over. Yeah, we don't need reminders that summer lasted apparently about seven minutes, or at least that's what it felt like. So, And we get it. It rained a lot. It was yeah. hot. You didn't go to the pool as nearly as often as you wanted. Don't ask how the summer was. Look ahead. Let's ask look ahead. anything other than how was your summer. But I got to tell you, Dave, September. It's the month of back to. Now, you might be thinking there and saying, Evan, what do you mean? Let me tell you. Back to school. Back to work after summer vacations. Back to work after the Labor Day weekend. Back to the grind if things tended to slow down for you during the summer. Back to the divorce attorney's office. Now, you may be thinking again, Producer Dave, what does September have to do with divorce? Yeah. Absolutely everything. There's so much craziness in September with all I mentioned above. And what does that lead to? Stress, high tension, emotions, people running their kids around, coordinating schedules, all those things. And you have those cracks in the relationships or marriages, and they get bigger in the month of September. Look, during the summer, many people work on their marriages. Kids are in camp, day camp, sleepaway camp. The weather's nice. No school, work's a bit calmer. And if you can't make your marriage work over a cocktail in the backyard when the weather's nice and it's late 30, look, it's not going to work. <laughs> and September, you're back to the divorce attorney's office. What are your thoughts, Dave? Yeah, it. it I mean, life has cycles and the, the seasons are real. And especially with us in the Northeast, Evan, there's such a thing called seasonal depression disorder or something like that which i think i tend to get in the middle of the winter and so it does affect our moods and we measure things by things during the course of the year we measure things by christmas by the beginning of summer and indeed by the end of summer so i'm not surprised i'm slightly depressed but 
We're here on the Shine On podcast to pick people's spirits up, of course. That's right. You know what we we have that's going to absolutely do that? What's up? The docket. So fire it up. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Item one comes to, comes to us from marketwatch.com. It's a father writing into this advice column. He's upset about his daughter, but for an unusual reason. Item one. Headline reads, I gave my daughter $5,000 for her divorce, but she lashed out when I refused to give her more. When will enough be enough? That's what this writer writes in to this advice columnist named Quentin Fottrell. Now, of course, Evan, I'm dying to hear what you have to say because you gave her $5,000 for her divorce. What was that, for just parking at the lawyer's office? Because I think he's got to dig a little deeper, but you tell me. I don't even know. It really depends on where your lawyer's office is located. <laughs> but look, I think the, the article is actually signed, said that. And so let me say this, said that, I get it. Divorce is expensive. Raising children is expensive. Paying for all sorts of things for your ex-wife and your children, it adds up. And it's all really, really expensive. You know what may be the most expensive of them all? Your daughter's divorce. Mm. Now, you mentioned in the article your, your own divorce. And you should know better than anyone how emotionally draining and financially expensive a divorce can be. I get it. You want to teach your kids lessons, money lessons, financial lessons, lessons that show them that you're not going to financially support them forever. You should talk to your kids and have the money and financial talk with them. You probably should have had it years ago, said dad. Just don't have it now. Your daughter who's getting divorced needs you. She needs your support and for you to be there. And divorce is expensive. And yes, you may feel that you're right and that she should be standing on her own two feet financially and pay for her own divorce. But saying no to her now, picking this is the moment, picking this is the point when she's going through a divorce and a tough time, it's not the time, said Dad. Help her get through this time and then have the conversation that is probably long, long overdue. What are your thoughts? Oh, I couldn't agree more. It, it's just... Yes, it's expensive, and yes, if the if the father is flat out, then what are you going to do? Maybe he's he's stretched thin, but if he isn't, you're right. It's I mean, it, if his daughter needs him ever, this is the this is the point. And the time this is the, 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 the time to say no. And, and look, he created right. the situation. He now complains right. about. Absolutely right, and he talks about how much he spent on his daughter's education. Well, that's noble, of course, but this kind of is. Close to an emergency. It's there aren't there aren't too many life traumas bigger than with the apologies to like true tragedies and things like that. But as far as the the ups and downs of life, divorce is a low point. It is your daughter needs you, guy. All right, we now turn our attention to the celebrity world. Actress Halle Berry and her thoughts on her divorce is in the news. Item two from People dot com comes to us. This item: Halle Berry is relieved. Her divorce from Olivier Martinez is settled. She says she's ready to move on. And the actress agreed to pay her soon-to-be ex-husband $8,000 a month in child support. Well, Halle Berry is that accomplished, I suppose, and probably that wealthy. But your thoughts, Evan? 
Well, Dave, my first thought is talk about a headline that's going to shock no one. <laughs> of course, Holly Berry is relieved her divorce is settled. Right. The percentage of people who are relieved their case settles. A hundred percent of the people. That's what Every I'm... person I have ever met in my 15 years of practice says they're happy their case settled. No one is not happy their case settled. Come on, People Magazine. You think you can put together a better headline than this? But look, I got to tell you, are we reading about another celebrity divorce every day? Or does it feel like that? Well, we always hear about celebrity divorces simply because I'm, I'm guessing reporters have access to public documents and the filing of a divorce is such a thing with, with I guess, certain exceptions, Evan. But, but yeah, just anecdotally, it does feel like there is more. And maybe it's just a matter of the society continues to march in this direction. Divorce historically in a generation before us, there was a little more stigma attached to it. Now there's less. I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure why, but yeah. And uh, I always find myself. Is it, is, it, is it social media? I mean, is is it the access to information and people publicizing their divorce and celebrities? I mean, does that play a role? There are. Well, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably onto something there. Celebrities are going to live their life out loud more than the rest. Of, the rest of us, but all of us, celebrities included, things like an impending divorce can be amplified and maybe prompted to happen when it maybe it wouldn't more so in this era with people living their everybody living their life out loud on social media everybody texting posting a picture of the fettuccine alfredo they just ate at dinner and then by mistake there's someone <laughs> sitting next to them and the husband's like who is that sitting next to you and it just there's a lot of that there's a lot of out there and maybe that's part of it item three evan comes to us from upworthy.com item three Headline reads, daughter pens a heartfelt letter honoring her mother's inspiring journey after divorce. You are a star, she writes. Kind of a nice story, I think. What did you think of it? Yeah, Dave, you're right. And what an absolutely fantastic way to wrap up the docket. Look, this is great. It's absolutely great. A mother who went through a divorce and life's ups and downs and more downs than ups takes the tough times and turns her divorce into an opportunity, an opportunity for herself to look at the bright spots, to see the positive, pursue a dream, to become a screenwriter, move to L.A. Instead of being blocked by the obstacles that sometimes, look, divorce creates, she went right through them. Her story is an inspiration not only to her daughter, it should be an inspiration to everyone out there on how you could really thrive after a divorce, see the positives. And look, it doesn't take away any of the struggles or how hard the divorce or life may have been, but it shows that what life after divorce can be pre pretty great if you have a positive mindset and choose to focus on all the benefits and, and great things ahead. And I think a lot of credit to the daughter, because I can tell you as a divorced parent, our, our ultimate fear is always that we've done something horrible to our kids. And I know that my, my kids would rather not, obviously wouldn't rather have me and my ex-wife stay together, given the, the alternative. But for this daughter, now, now, as far as we know, the daughter is just as supportive of her, her father in, in his life after divorce. Sure. We don't know that. But the point is, I can tell you that it was certainly worth its weight in gold to the mom to hear the support. Dave, do you find over the years that, in, in talking about your own experience, that as your kids get older, there's either 
certain comments that are said or, or, or experiences that you might share with your kids that make you realize that going through the process in some ways was an inspiration or there were benefits to it that perhaps the kids now see as they've gotten much older? Yeah, I think I know where you're going with that. And people always say one of the bright sides of divorce, of being divorced parent is you do have an opportunity to shine as a parent in ways that you didn't before. You're, you're standing on your own two feet and you're, you have this sort of exclusive time with your kids that you wouldn't have otherwise. And do the kids appreciate that? Well, maybe not right off the bat for sure. And I think it's years down the road. I, I guess I'm not brave enough to ask my sons point blank, has this been okay? Am I doing okay? Because I'd rather just kind of show them the way, spend, time, spend quality time with them. And I think in time, any, any parent who has those noble intentions will, will have it rewarded. Spend time with your kids. It's, sometimes it's as simple as that. All right, Evan, we are up to the portion of the program where we hear from you, the listener. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. In this edition of Ask Evan, we hear from Robin in New Rochelle, New York. Robin writes as follows. Dear Evan, my ex-spouse and I have been divorced for a while, but they have stopped making the court-ordered child support payments. What legal recourse do I have to ensure that they fulfill their financial obligations? And how can I navigate this situation without causing unnecessary conflict? Sticky situation. Your, your thoughts, Evan? David, it is sticky. And Robin, thanks for the question. Look, post-divorce agreements have language in them that contemplates this exact scenario. When someone stops paying support or stops complying with the agreement, what's the default language and what's the remedy? Generally, you would start by sending a letter or an email to your former spouse, letting him or her know that they're in default and asking for the payment to be made if the payment's not made in a certain time period, which again should be spelled out under your agreement, then you might have to seek court intervention. And look, nobody wants to go back to court. You spent a lot of time, a lot of money, perhaps battling it out in court. The last thing you want to do is to end up back in court. But sometimes that happens. If you're looking for an intermediate step between sending the letter, the notice, and going to court, you may want to consult with an attorney, which is something I would absolutely recommend. And perhaps a letter from a lawyer to your former spouse may do the trick. If not, court, unfortunately, is the likely next stop on the post-divorce bus. And while you do not want to create unnecessary conflict, and I get it and I can appreciate that, keep in mind that you're not the one who stopped paying. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. On this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Dorian Wheel. Dorian is a clinical and organizational psychologist with over 30 years experience in hospital, private, and corporate practice. Dr. D is renowned as South Africa's leading media psychologist whose live radio and TV talk shows address the spectrum of life challenging relationship and self-development topics. She's regularly appointed for a comment on current issues and was the expert psychologist on the Oscar Pistorius trial. Dorianne, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. And my absolute pleasure to be here with you. That, that's great. Thank you for the invitation. Well, of course, we are excited. I want to start with a quote. Nelson Mandela once said of you, 
I don't know if you are aware of the hope and inspiration you offer and the difference that you make to so many lives. Dory, thank you for the great contribution you make to building our nation. Wow. Such incredibly high praise from such an iconic figure. Tell us the whole story behind that and how you got to know Nelson Mandela. Well, thank you. And it is something that I'm extremely proud of because, of course, it reflects a little bit about the relationship that we had and that I did have the privilege of knowing him. I don't know really where you say the whole story. I guess the, but the story really begins being born in apartheid South Africa and really being involved as a student, especially, and in early adult life. Once the struggle in a way and being somewhat of a social activist. And I'll start on the day that Nelson Mandela was being released with an absolutely iconic day for the whole country. Well, for many of the country, but certainly it was for me. He was coming out in Cape Town. I was living in Johannesburg and there was no way that I was going to miss this moment and witnessing that moment. And actually, I asked a few people to come down to Cape Town with me about a two-hour plan. And most of them wouldn't. They said, it's going to be too dangerous. Let's watch it on TV. And in the end, I went with some kids of friends of mine because it was that important for me to witness what was happening. And so I was, I felt very passionately in those years about what was going on here. Got invited to any of the events to the inauguration event and witnessing that event we're really witnessing this this peaceful transition happening and seeing Nelson Mandela taking the bow there with his warder his prison warder next to him was very moved and involved in it and actually the part of getting that quote how did I, how did I form a relationship with him? Started with something I was, I was concerned politically as you could, but with something else I was trying to feel pregnant over many, many years. It was an emotional roller coaster with highs and lows, hopes and disappointment, dreams and devastation. And I actually lost seven pregnancies along the way. He was giving public talks, which I didn't really feel like attending in that very open kind of platform. And so we invited him to be on my radio talk show. And I met this man who would be on Larry King and on Oprah. So he spoke about fertility issues, the depth of understanding, which was beyond genetic material and, and long medical work. He picked up from me a degree of empathy, which I know he found quite unusual because he didn't know that it was my story. He had no idea. We were just talking about the topic. And at the end of it, when we knew that something magical had happened, there was a kind of intangible connection in the way we were dealing with this emotionally, medically, holistically with the people before. It was just like an unsaid wow in looking at him. And I said, Jeff, and he said, yes. I said, well, 
kept me up to his teddy why you really yeah. And then I told him my story over many years. Didn't interrupt. Just listen. Listen to listen. And at the end, and I said to him, why on earth am I going to do that? He said, I would like to invite you and your husband to stay with Wow. And I said, I think you better check that out. What had happened is we became friends. And I had several attempts. And my husband, who was in real estate, used to say that this is the most expensive real estate in the world because we were paying for embryo storage all the way across the world. And on one occasion, there was something else that was tired and I got very sick again, very sick. And they just said to him, to Les, my husband, if you want your wife to die, let her do this one more time. And it was as dramatic as that. So at that stage, we sort of looked at each other. It was in going through and aspects of relationship that you talk about. When one wants to give up and one is known, the other might prop them up a little bit in a supportive way. If communication is fairly good, any kind of huge stress is going to bring you closer together because it's you and me against the world, babe. If the communication is bad and we've had cracked already, any huge stress, that being one, might bear you apart. As we saw in COVID, divorce rate, and, and other people, when I said to them, what was the impact on COVID? They just spoke about gratitude and not realizing that So we went through this and the first time, I met the woman who carried my twin, was in the scanning room in San Francisco. She was really pregnant. And the reason that chose her was because she had the same name as my mother, which I thought was a sign. She was so intentional about her, her own for wanting to do this. She had five children of her own, and her work was the assistant to a headmaster in a school. So she couldn't imagine what it would have done to not have kids when you wanted them so bad. And over the period of time, it was quite a journey. When she told me she was moving house, I said, oh, no, you are not picking up anything. I will be the hand, you will be the oven. And I will need to move to house for her, meet her kids. And in the end, even, I mean, we got called to come to San Francisco much earlier than we thought. And we went to San Francisco and we were buying baby clothes and we were sitting in the feeding chair. And one day, very, very keen on wine, and a passion, it was a passion of this. We, we interested in a wine class, yeah, and said, it's enough of all this baby shop, going to Napa, to Robert Mondavi. And we're going to Opus Wine, and we are going to taste some wine today. And of course, I think you can anticipate what happened. We in Napa at Opus Wine. A very bubbly woman with lots of coals in her hair and a great bottle of wine was showing us around. And we get the call. The call said, you better come and have it in the season. Yeah. Well, I don't know how much we had to grab that taxi driver to put his foot down, get us back there as soon as possible. There was huge confusion. It took what felt like a long time 
to find out where this was all happening. We were there 10 minutes before it happened. And I had this button because in America, where you know, have a button for every occasion, right? And it said today I'm a dad. And I pinned it on him. And he just cried and cried and cried. He's quite, was quite controlled usually, but it was all these years and they were, I still get emotional and I thought about it. He just said two things. He said, I never thought we And I said, I always knew we would. And this day we are So you can imagine the celebration. The Brenner girl, a lot of people who I knew, who we, and we never spoke to anyone, to the press or anything about it. In South Africa. And so when we brought them back to South Africa, Patrick said, I know you do, you talk about divorce and marking occasions. Well, I didn't know what to do to mark this occasion. There was nothing that initially think of that would be, that would be fitting with the magnitude of what it was, what it meant to us and to a lot of people. And what happened, and this is the, the part of the Nelson Mandela part of it, is Yanni Versace was visiting South Africa with all the top models of the world. They were having a fashion show in Cape Town. A friend of mine who was very connected to the ANC, a PR person, she's actually, we had the same surname, said, come on, let's just think out of the box. We're going to take people to Ireland, Johannesburg to Cape Town to attend this fashion in celebration of the birth of the children and other things it arranged for the weekend. So it was quite a strange storm. We actually, we went to the head of South African Airways. We put together a PR proposal for him where we would have the street children paint, paint love slogans on one of their flights that would fly around the country in promotion of SAA, which had been having a bad time. And he, we got an appointment with him and he said, and what do I do? I said, well, it's not going to cost you anything. We just want the plane. So he said, what? I said, no, we, we would like to borrow the plane. Right. We want to take 177 out of Johannesburg to Cape Town. We'd like the pilot to wait for the weekend and then bring us all back again. Now, Evan, it sounds ridiculous, but we actually pulled this off. We had a hell of a party on a white bomb in Cape Town with a wonderful big band. We all went to this fashion show. The models were on a tour match. It was fantastic. And we said, no gifts. We want donations for the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. That was the beginning of it. So anyone who wanted to acknowledge it, we managed to get quite a nice donation out of it and gave it to the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund in recognition of this miracle that had happened with our kids. We had a wonderful time. A few days after we got back, a little while after we got back, came home. Maybe said to the Queen. So he says she says Nelson Mandela's home. And I said expressed some concern as to what she might have been smoking. And I said, how did you know it was him? So she said, because he said so. Now, on the radio station that I was at, there was an amazing host who could talk exactly like him. And I thought it was a prank. 
prank with Jeremy Mansfield. And it was a whole prank. So we went to bed. And the next morning, phone ring. I pick up the phone. He says, Mrs. Wheel, I said, yes. He said, this is not some Mandela. And I wow. said, yeah, Jeremy. Right. I said, good morning, Mr. President. So he said, I'd like to invite you and your husband to come to my house for dinner. And even if you would imagine the date that he said, I'm sorry, I mean, when I think of it, and he said, well, then will you come for breakfast? And I said, it would be an honor. Wow. All the time, I was thinking that it was very thankful for this. What else could it have been? He was appreciating the donation from their birth. We went there. He opened the door. It was only him. There was no one else. And it turned out to be wanting some assistance with the development of schools and hospitals in the area that you lived in. It was nothing about it. Nothing. Here's the, uh, the company that we were associated with. In some ways, wasn't the league of many of others that she was talking about. But what did say that her sister was do. So we flew with him on his play to view the area with two other people who was that. And we got talking and listening. And he was anything that people say about being so attentive and making you feel that really you were the only and asking any questions. And just, he, he really did have that kind of quality very much. And so we spoke a lot on the way there, on the way back. And we kept up our relationship. And then to my, I mean, unbelievable, he told me that he was starting to listen to some of the shows on the radio. And that's how I got that quote. You know, after that, and when he was ill and for years after, I went to visit him twice at home when he was ill. And I would say that it's probably the most valued, valued acknowledgement and valued gift I've ever received from anyone. So that's the story of the quote. Joy, that is absolutely incredible. Your journey, your story, the relationship with Nelson Mandela and, and really everything behind that and really his words to you and, and that relationship, how it started, backstory, how it continued, just absolutely. I mean, it, all, it leaves me speechless, which anyone who's listening knows that that's a hard thing to do because it's such an incredibly powerful moment and relationship that you had. Dory, you've been named one of South Africa's most influential women. What influences specifically would you like to be known for? Look, it seems like a cliche, but I think cliches are cliches for a reason because there is meaning behind them. So I feel almost like saying, because I want to make a difference. Everyone says because they want to make a difference. But I think that it, it is for making some sort of difference. I think if I look at the range, even, and I know you're interested and thank you, in the range of work that I do in all parts of it, it is really about people who I, who, who I come, I become in touch with and who hopefully are touched in some way, leaving differently from the encounter, leaving differently from how they stepped in. I'm not saying that that's so intentional with every friend that I have and with 
or the people that, that I think of being in the field that I'm in all the time. But, I mean, really, you want to go away having had a good time or having had fun or having had a connected conversation or feeling comforted. That's, that, that's just in life. And I think it's, a, it's, it's an intention that everyone might have. But in the work, I do a lot of work with the Young President Organization all over the world, and I have worked with them and in their forum groups, which is a particular construct that they have of groups of people who meet regularly once a month with the idea of creating an atmosphere of safety and confidentiality so that they can talk about any business or personal issue in confidence and so that they can get a slice of each other. They can get honest feedback from each other without labeling it as too critical. There are ways that they talk to each other that enhance the authenticity and trust of the communication. Not the privilege of working with many forum groups in 59 countries since I started with them. And going in there and having people share their sacred space. I mean, what a privilege is that? For people to share personal and sacred space. And when you find that people do start talking about the fact that they are a member of the human race, even though they're running a few and they still have issues about relationships, about children, about founders, about competition, about all of that, it becomes more contagious than any virus. And it gives everyone else a chance to say, oh my goodness, you too. And I thought that you were a BFD, which means a very big deal. So, and me as a person, personally, I do have an optimistic worldview. And I think that that's very different from positivity. People say, be positive, be positive. I find that that being positive often means don't talk like this or be in denial or don't think of the difficult stuff. I mean, I know that you work so much. With difficulty, people who are going through huge, huge tra- traumatic times in their lives with divorces and so on. If you just say, oh, just think of your life in the future, don't worry about this. The only way out is in. So optimism to me means hope. It means that there's, there's a possibility of lights at the end of a tunnel that aren't always the lights of an oncoming train. Doesn't mean don't deal with what you have to deal with. And so when people say to me, yeah, often, I mean, I'm sure you hear that often about partners or ex-partners or whatever, a leopard doesn't change his work very often. And I say, yes, but we got leopards. People. And we can change our spots. And we do some experiences. Or when you think you're going to lose the best thing that ever happened to you, you realize that, that it's not just tomorrow and another day. Put in the same ingredients, you might get out the same cake. People get wake-up calls. And they kind of learn how not to let suffering go to waste. I think that I said it's a wish to enable responsibility, responsibility being divided into words, the ability to respond. 
That's incredible. When you talk about optimism in the work that I do and, and, and helping people think about the future, how far is it to get people and to help people to see that, to believe it, to, to, to think about their future when they're going through an incredibly hard time, whether it's a divorce, loss of a loved one, they're in the middle of a transition. How challenging is it for you in those moments in your practice? And what advice would you give to someone, whether it's a divorce attorney or someone else, to help people see what's ahead for their clients? Evan, I think that by the fact that you're asking the question in the way that you are, you, I think you're already telling me that you know that it's not so easy in the work that you do. And I would absolutely agree with you. And I think that the wish that people have to take the pain away, whether it's a professional person sometime or to you, we don't like feeling helpless in front of someone, especially people who we care about. And even clients, of course, who care about, but certainly family members or whatever, you are in pain. And so the default mode is to kind of, where's my magic wand? And what can I do to reassure this person? And may, and, and, and please let me take the pain away. And of course, that may be down the line. I mean, but I think that the mistake that we sometimes as professionals make, and other people in the orbit of the person who's having a problem is that we try and do that too soon and it sounds placatory. And all you let the person is left with is that this person doesn't get me at all. If you just say to them, look, it's tough, but really kind of count your blessing. Look at your children. At least you're not this. Every cloud has a silver lining, or it wasn't meant to be anyway. Or, you know, it had to happen, so let's get it over with. All those sorts of things that are well-intended are statements that are not connecting with the person initially. And if you want to be helpful to the person, the first thing is to get them. And get them means, can you listen actively? Listen between the lines. Not just the word. Can you hear the emotion that the person is is trying? Can you even make an assumption based on what you're experiencing in the moment with all your senses fully receptive to this person, what this person may be going through? And if you can, can you say it to them so that they know that this person gets me? So you would say this is one of the hardest journeys you have ever been through in your life. Or you didn't imagine it would be as difficult as yours. Or it sounds like your one part of you wants to do it this way and you're so angry and you're so frustrated and, and you want that revenge. On the other hand, you don't want to bring down your children's father and that's tough. So anything that you can say to check out, because you don't know, this is all just really trying to see whether your impression as the receiver is the same as the person's expression as the sender. Does it match? 
have you got it? Can you get it? Now, it's not all that you do, but it's the beginning of what you do. You might be able to have skills and strategies and hardcore advice, like you have to give from a legal point of view and from a financial point of view, but there's always the emotional point of view too, which is less obvious. There's the legal divorce, the economic divorce, and the emotional divorce. And sometimes they don't all match at exactly the same time. So I think to the extent that you can show understanding and ensuring that understanding, especially of what the person's doing looks like emotionally, you will connect with them. And yes. I would say that that's the first part in the development of trust, in the person becoming less expensive because they say, gee, this is a nice man and knowledgeable and he gets. So I can talk to him a bit. And then there's a lot less time for all the other essential stuff that has to come into the conversation. One of the reasons I love doing the podcast is I get to speak to wonderful people, intelligent people, people who go through experiences and it's, I learn and anyone out there listening to this episode, they should play what you just said over and over and over, because what we can learn from that as practitioners, as attorneys, as professionals about how to really understand the people that you're working with, how to really get through to the people that you're working with, how to really put yourself in the moment and actively listen to the people that you're working with. It, it, it's a challenge, and I think your advice is, is terrific. It's brilliant. It's spot on. And just like I learned from the people that I interview and the guests that I have on my podcast, over the course of your career, Dory, you have interviewed some incredible people from your work as a radio show host to the people that you've interviewed off the air. What are some of the most memorable interviews that you've conducted? Who are some of the most memorable people that you have met that made of an impact and a difference in your life? I just want to thank you for, for kind of challenging me to think about this because you would imagine that I've thought about this often before, but somehow in I'm thinking of how I'm going to respond to you, I actually haven't given it all that much thought before. I've stepped away from interviews with that kind of wow way. It just transcends the variable. The experience and the, the stuff that happens between you and what you pick up isn't always translatable and, and that's some, some of the magic. But as you said it now, maybe because I was talking a bit about South Africa's history and the struggle, I remember an interview that I once did that, that certainly has stuck with me. And we had a three-hour show. At night, it was from, I think, about 9 to 12. And we had three guests. And the topic was all about forgiveness. And each of these guests had to, to talk from their perspective. And they were, they were very carefully chosen to illustrate the concept of forgiveness. And since then, I have done shows called From Forgiveness to Freedom, A Worthy Journey. Because if you carry that, that grudge and that bitterness with you, you, you might as well dig two graves. It's not only against the person. It's for yourself. 
that you can find it in you and go through the process. And there is a process. It's not, it's, it's a verb. It's doing it. Sorry is like a, like a verb. It's not, it's not just something. I'm sorry and it's over. But the interview that I'm thinking of, and they were all incredible that night. The one was the ex minister of police in the old regime who was the only minister who went to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, there was no forcing to go to that commission. But what was obvious was that he, Arthur Armstrong's name was, was not sleeping well at night. He hadn't been able to come to terms with some of what he felt he, he, he was tasked to do. And so he spoke about that and he went to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission voluntarily when most of the other people didn't do it. And the interview that really, the, the other one was actually fascinating as well. It was F.W. de Klerk, who was then, before Mandela came in, he was the state, the, the president of the country at the time. And his wife, Mariki de Klerk, had actually been quite brutally murdered. And she was murdered. It wasn't a crime. It was kind of a, a violent crime. But I happened to be the last person to interview her, the last live interview that she ever did. And her whole area of forgiveness was more on a personal level of, of actually she had moved to her husband who actually had left her and now was very recently married to another woman who he had met on a boat and was struggling coming to terms with it. Sticking with him through seconds and she sort of held the space of the old philosophy, wasn't really able to move with him in his growth and development and the resentment that she had felt and how she got over that. And she spoke about it a lot to do with faith. Her religious faith, what played a very, very poor part. But after that interview, six weeks after that, when she was murdered, I got a call from FW to who I had met, but not kept very personally, saying, please would I come there to Cape Town to meet with them. And I realized it was him and his then wife because of that interview. And they wanted to talk about the, the people who should attend her funeral, her children, obviously, but should it be the children of his new wife as well? How, how did, would that go down? And, of course, I really, I think they, 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 they but I didn't have that answer. It was to do with what they felt was right and how they wanted to acknowledge this. And in the end, her children were there, but took quite a back seat in it. And I then developed a relationship with him and actually spoke at his 85th birthday, which was just, just before he died. But really, it was the third interview of that one. What had happened in South Africa was that Chris Harley, who was an icon of the struggle, absolute icon of the struggle, had been killed and shot. And the people went on the rampage. They were protesting in the areas throughout the streets and people were out of control and it was very, very devastating and he was honestly 
a tremendous, a tremendous loss. And in this whole protesting, what had happened is that a white young American field scholar got caught in all the crossfire. She got shot. The name was Ava Field. And anybody could Google it. She was here to actually assist and to work in certain projects in rural areas and so on with just huge, huge positive intention to make a personal contribution to what was going on here at the time. The interview that I did was with Amy Beale's parents. Big job. Peter, Peter and Big Mary, sorry, I might have heard her first name wrong. And what was absolutely amazing is you can imagine if you've, you, I think you do have a daughter, Evan, I remember reading, but everyone who's listening who has children, everyone who has children, how would you feel in the face of finding the perpetrators who shot and killed your daughter when she was there with such an absolutely beautiful, helpful agenda in mind? They had found the perpetrators in the interview. They told me that they grant these perpetrators and they do not want to press the charges. They had had very, very difficult background themselves. They were victims of the system. She was acting in the wrong place at the wrong time. And in fact, what they did is they start, started a foundation, the Amy Beale Foundation, in cooperation with the perpetrators who shot her. Wow. Now, that was just, I mean, being in their presence and just thinking, is this real or rehearsed? They're saying you think. And it was very emotional. And it was, you know, and I'm not putting it forward as, look at this as an example of what anyone else should and must have to go to good, bad, Right, wrong, shoot, shoot. I'm just telling it as a story of these people were American, founded in their heart to start a foundation of the purpose trip in cooperation with the perpetrators of the people who killed their daughter. And that just came to me when you asked that question. Absolutely incredible story. Story, you mentioned forgiveness and the work that I do families, with people who are separating, couples who are divorcing, where there's children involved. Divorces can go on for a year, two years, three years. It's an incredibly tough time emotionally, financially, transitionally for kids, for parents. And a lot of times there's anger. There's anger, there's hurt, there's grief. And many people hold on to that anger. And it becomes challenging to communicate. It becomes challenging to resolve conflict. For people going through a divorce where there is that anger and the ending of a relationship and marriage comes as a shock, whether it's because of infidelity or for some other reason, how do you suggest someone forgives or puts aside that emotion, that anger, to be able to co-parent, to be able to communicate, to be able to have conversations about conflict resolution for their kids and to be able to move forward and co-parent. 
in the way that they really need to do. Evan, I wish that we could do a whole show just about this and issues theory. Because the first thing to say is how do they do it, I would say, with difficulty and that I would never minimize the 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 depth of of the gamut of all emotion, like being like a roller coaster. And also just to say that it's almost like it's an expected response to a very traumatic situation. So I would want to say that in the very beginning, as a bit of it's not going to help with getting to terms of the forgiveness, which I'll talk about, but, but with a reassuring statement, because what you're going through is most likely to be something that is an expected response to a situation that is traumatic. If you felt none of this, you know, a pain or anger, I mean, even we, we talk about grief, grief is the price you paid for love. If you don't feel grief, what does it say about the connection that you had with the person? Kind of, okay, one down, one to go. Every tear that you cry is a testimony to the connection that you had. And with divorce, it's about the loss of, of, of a vision and a hope and an expectation and huge disappointment. And, and so I think that it, it, it really, really is a process in the beginning. So how do you come to terms with it? First of all, I think that for a lot of people in acrimonial situations, particularly, it's more important to learn to be happy. In other words, I will not step down. Damn it. You started this. You do this first. It's pride. And too much pride causes too much pain. They might be really hurting inside and might want to resolve something. But the idea of admitting that, saying that, to a lot of people, is me, I was going to say, especially men, I mean, that's the stereotype. I'm not so sure that really is. Well, it is true. Because cowboys don't cry, not in front of their horses anyway. So, so... To be strong often means to not be vulnerable. But you know what? You, the, the pain and the hurt gets translated into anger very quickly. It's a more, it's a safer to show that sometimes it's like being um, cross and upset. But often hurt is the first thing people feel and then they show the anger. If you go beyond the anger, Almost all the time, almost all the time is really hurt. But what gets displayed is anger. And it gets displayed in ways that are very challenging to the other person. So instead of, with very difficult, let's say, be able to say, that was really, really hurtful. I, I know that you upset, but honestly, if you try to kind of dig in and find my my source, but you have. You've done it. And it is. If we, that's very difficult, that kind of conversation. The response would usually be an angry one. What happened is that people have two ways of responding to that. They either defend or blame. I did this because you did that, but you do that because I did that. I agree because my wife married me, but she, I married pretty things. But if you didn't break, I wouldn't have to nag you. Eventually, 
You have to say, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Alcoholic or whatever. Lady, you don't do the drinking. What he does. You do that. So if we both want the situation to, to decelerate a little bit, can we talk about what the part is that you play in it? And the part is that what you play in it for the same desired outcome at the end. But they get spiraled up, and you probably see this every day. He did this, I'm going to show him, and I'll do one harder, and one more, and one more. And you eventually, yeah. you can say, are you, are you, what are you getting out of other than winning? Is it, is it helping your needs to be met? Maybe stepping down, which, which of course, there is no answer. It's not a no, no easy answer. It's very difficult. And I mean, you see people who stand at gravesides of relatives who aren't talking to each other and they don't even remember what the initial things. And that gets, that gets lost on it. Kind of pick up the mantle and to people who, now at the end of the day, people have experiences that tell them that life is short. Let's, let's see, can do. And then there are models, I mean, Evan, which I'll show you, issues clearing models, ways of talking to people. There's a very, very, quite simple, but very powerful five-step issues clearing model, which, I mean, I was, I used it again quite recently with a couple. It was actually just towards, you know, thinking of it within the wake of COVID and I'll just tell you the story of it quite quickly. He was saying to her, look, he said, you, you, when I have to go to meetings and I'm trying so hard to pivot my business, you just step in the way, you, an obstacle, you're not encouraging. I, I, I feel, I, I mean, I'm doing this and you are, you, where are you? And you, you're not on my side. And those are the facts. And then the story I told myself about the fact is I told myself that we don't keep anymore, that we've, we've lost the connection that we used to have. We're unsupportive of each other, that you don't understand. And the feelings that I have about the story that I tell myself is I scared. About what's happening to us. I'm angry because you're not encouraging. I'm anxious and I'm really hurt. Well, and at that point, we talk about the feelings, the story I tell myself, and the emotions that I feel about it. You stop and you say to the other person, What did you hear? And she says, Well, the facts are I'm an optical go to meetings and I encourage him. I'm doing this very briefly. The story he tells out himself is that we're not a team anymore. The feelings that he has, assaultia, some anxiety, frustration. And you do that until you make sure the other person has heard. Is that right? Is there any more about that? Is there any more about that? And then you go on and you say, viral, my accountability is this. And what he said is that I've been building up, building up, building up and I haven't said anything. And now I feel like no. And the request that I have of you 
is to please enlighten me about what the hell is going on with that. And I just need some 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 information and some reassurance with the view of, of trying to sort this out. You check out that that's what's in And you know what she said? It was so amazing. After we made sure that, that, that he had been heard properly, she just burst out, and it was, it was quite interesting because it was online even, and she said, I just, I love you so much. I did it. I am, I've been looking at all of the COVID figures, and I'm so scared, and you know that I lost my dad when I was growing up. And if my children had to be out of work, and if I had to use you, I just think I'd never, ever, and I nope. haven't told I've been stopping you out of this. And it was just hearing a deeper, more authentic, honest perspective, dealing with all the stories that we make in our heads about the meaning of stuff, clarifying the real meaning of stuff, and then being able to have a conversation that said, look, I do have to go out now knowing this. Make sure that it's outside. I'll check in with you. I'll be more careful about wearing my mask during that time and all of that. And then having more conversations about pulling together. So that's okay. It's a nice, sort of a little bit of a polyamory. Is real. Make that up. It's a real example. It doesn't always work out like that. But I think that it does illustrate that we make assumptions so much, turn ourselves in. I'd be able to say, I was scared. I was hurt. I can see what you want, but I just need to unkind about it. I'll do my best. Which are hard conversations people to have, especially without a facilitator. Dory, thank you for taking us into that, into that moment, into that session. Producer Dave, let's bring you on. Now's the perfect time to do a short segment that we always do on the podcast, which is a lot of fun. So, Dave. Take it away. You bet, Evan. Thanks so much. And Dr. D, I've enjoyed the conversation so far. It's tremendous. Now, though, is it, it is a time where we hear from others. We hear famous quotes from notable historical figures and such. And our guest will respond in this installment of They Said It. They Said It. They Said It. They Said It. All right. Quote number one comes to us from Kurt Vonnegut. He said the following, We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Uh, Dr. D, your, your thoughts on that one? Excellent, I think. I relate to that completely because it's just what we've been talking about. People are scared to be what they really are. Why are they scared to be what they really are? I think there are two huge reasons why. One is for fear of loss of love, and the other is for fear of loss of respect. There's shame. There's shame that comes into it. There's an image that I want to project, and I think that if people relate to that image, they will like me. I will belong to them. They will lord me. I will have status from this. I will be respected and, most of all, be included. So they behave in a way that they think is going to bring, have all of those human needs met. Because at the end of the day, we are wired for connection. 
And so if the, the, if the image is what they show, what will happen is the, the connection won't be authentic because it will be connection to an image only. Some of that image might be parts of you, but the real you, the part that says I'm not good enough. I'm not rich enough, clever enough, pretty enough, sexy enough, good enough cook or whatever. That's the part that the authentic part that also isn't. So when people relate to you, they're relating to the veneer and the pretense and the image. So you better be careful about what you pretend. I agree with him completely. Great thoughts. Evan, it reminds me that maybe I should have quoted your fellow New Yorker, Billy Joel, who once famously said, we all have a face that we hide away forever and we take it out and show ourselves when no one else has gone. Maybe that's for a different show. Next quote comes to us from philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who said the following, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Your thoughts on that, Dr. D? I think that what he's saying is that hardship, suffering, challenge is a part of life. And if it, it, it was something that I've said right at the beginning, and I'm trying to think of who said it first, but I'm saying it now that the only way out is in. So that means that there is, there in, in relation to going through, through the predictable life stages and the unpredictable things that happen to us, Life happens, and John Lennon says it happens when you're making other plans. And I guess the idea is how do you make meaning from the point of view of that the Chinese weren't stupid when they made the same symbol as crisis or opportunity. At the time, no one turns around and says, hey, thank you, Lord, for this most amazing learning experience that I'm having today. Definitely not at the time. But if you can find some meaning, which, by the way, is a sixth grief step that David Kessler just added after, long after the death of Elizabeth Kugler-Ross, where she spoke about her five stages of grieving, he worked with her and co-authored a book. And then when he had to go through his own personal grief, Regarding the loss of a son, he had to approach the Kubler-Ross Foundation and say there's something else. There's something else after this. Acceptance was her last day. And he said there's meaning. We have to find meaning. And he spoke about meaning of the life that he got to know and the legacy of his son. And, and also warned about trying to find the meaning too soon. You first have to go through the denial, the bargaining, the sadness, the, or the fact, the accept the end. And then he spoke about a period, which I don't think is the same for everyone, beginning to see that there was still meaning in someone's life. And the best thing that I can say about this was came from a man's search for meaning, Victor Frankl, man's search for meaning. And he came to South Africa many, 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 many years ago. I was nearly qualified young, starting a little bit to, to talk a bit on the speaking cir circuit. And I went to see him and there was a huge, 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 huge audience. And he stood up in front of the audience and for what felt like me to be a long time, but it was really only seconds. He just surveyed them. 
he just looked at them and I thought, oh my goodness, he's forgotten his line. <laughs> he doesn't know how he's going to open. Something has happened. I was feeling nervous for him. And then he started speaking and he looked at that vast audience and he said, the reason that I survived the concentration camps was you. I've never seen you before. I've certainly never met you before. But in my dreams, I said these words a thousand times. And then he went on to talk about the meaning and the importance of that they couldn't take away from him, that he had to keep alive, which kept him alive through those, if it was three years, because he wanted to, he wanted it to have significance for future generations. Wow. With apologies to all of our prior guests, Seven, I don't think we've ever delved this deep on a podcast before. I mean, we just we just covered Nietzsche, Viktor Frankl, and John Lennon in the same moment. So well Brilliant. done, Doctor. And we'll conclude with, with one further quote. The last one, it comes from Carl Jung, who said the following, the shoe that fits one person pinches another. There is no recipe for living that suits all cases. Your thoughts, no Doctor? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking I don't have to agree with all of these wonderful, famous people, no, but in fact, I don't have to. But I mean, what wisdom is there in that? Let me just say something that might be counter that for a minute. I think that certain there are certain threads of similarity that relate to all people that make their shoes feel like old circles. I think that those things that make is acceptance, understanding, recognition, things that we may feel. I just think that feelings don't grow up. They just house us in bigger bodies. So we can't throw our toys out of a cot as an adult in the same way as a kid is allowed to do. But there's certain feelings that are still very, very similar and reminiscent. So they are, I think, a thread of human needs and emotion that are similar to everyone. I wouldn't know many people unless you've got a, a done, at least a psychopathic, where you don't need some of those basic human needs to be met. I can tell you, and I'll talk personally now about that because I said something about recognition and encouragement. If you ask even what every single person on the podcast has said after all the many podcasts that he's done, if you talk to all of them, they'll say, how was I? All of them. How did it go? How did it go? We all went, I'm going to want that. Pass to you. And what, and what I have felt often is when I do especially virtual things and my husband passed away more than 10 years ago now, the thing that I miss in that moment is I used to have someone in my space who was waiting for me to say, I know you were anxious, how did it go? Now I press that little button on the bottom that says leave. I'm back in my study. I look at my two dogs, Charlie and Wally, and I say, you know, Bob, do something. Did you <laughs> like it? Good enough. So it's that kind of someone who has your back. In that moment, I've got plenty of support, but I would have to interrupt other people's lives to kind of get that next. So I think the all kind of human needs that make most people feel that they 
that's heavy state that let's look at that. Don't get in marriage. I mean, even as the expert, he'll tell you, what is the golden do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I think even before you know it too enthusiastically, that there's a platinum rule, much better than the gold rule. And that relates to Jung's statement, do unto others as they would have you unto them. Because what you want to be done unto you might not be the same as what they would have you unto them. We all know about different love languages. So what does that mean? It means find out what what it would be. What are they? Don't just assume that what everybody is the same. There will be a thread of similarity, but you know, you deal so much with divorce. Do people want you to call them a lot? Do they want to be left alone? You might want people to call you and say, How are you doing today? And other people say it's just too much. Uh, I'll just just send me a little message to say thinking of you. That's what helps me. And so you see so many different ways of how people want to be. And our job is if we want to connect with them, see what you can do to find out. I never realized there was narcissism embedded in the golden rule. But now that you explain <laughs> it that way, I, I think that's absolutely right. Why am I, why am I giving you what I would want? That's, that's rather presumptuous. It's a great point. Great point. Great thoughts all, Doctor. We appreciate it. Evan, back to you to wrap things up. Dr. D, Dr. Dorian Wheeled, this was brilliant. This was absolutely fantastic. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. It was an incredible time and just, wow. I mean, so much wonderful information, personal stories, your experience, everything that you've been through. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing that with myself and all the listeners. Evan, Dave. I just loved it. I felt in flow and relaxed with you. And it was really wonderful. And I hope to meet you in at the Big Apple. I would love it. Okay. Thank you. Episode 66. What an absolutely incredible episode. The interview with Dr. Dorian Wheel was brilliant. Dave, I could listen to her stories and words of wisdom over and over and over again. And Dave, I can't stop thinking about her Nelson Mandela story and really the tremendous impact Dr. D has had on so many people. Well, she said she might visit you in New York. If she does, maybe I'll join. And we'll do a follow-up episode of, uh, of the podcast. Producer Dave, you should join. It's about time <laughs> you made that long trip to, from Boston it's to not New York. That long. Dr. D, if Dr. D could travel from South Africa <laughs> to New York... Producer Dave can drive a few hours from Boston to New York. That's right. To all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast, including Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.